Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. and welcome to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I am here with the author of a fantastic debut novel that I was just saying consumed my entire previous weekend, and I am so excited to dig into it. Could I please ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Hi, uh, my name is uh, Raul Palma, and I'm the author of A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens, uh, which is coming out through Dutton on October 3rd. This is such a fantastic book. It um I love um all of the different genres it plays with. I love the main character and his complexity and I love things that happen later in the book that I don't want to spoil for people. But before <laughs> before we get into all that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey uh to this book. Um how did you get into writing? I know that you are a, um, a professor of writing at Ithaca, uh, if I if I read correctly. So I'm wondering, yeah, like how did this novel uh, arise? Oh, and you know, actually, uh, I'll respond to the first part of that question really quick. Get how I got into writing, because it's a funny story. I, I started writing, uh, really passionate about writing, in uh, in kindergarten, because my teacher uh, at the time took me to the library. And uh, we sat around and we listened to a story uh, from my librarian. And I remember at the time, I actually wasn't paying attention at all. <laughs> I was playing with something in the carpet. And when we got back to class, we had to uh, draw uh, something that we recalled from the story. And because I hadn't paid attention, I, I just kind of made something up. And then I told, made this whole story about this image that I created. And, and the teacher gave me the grace of saying, you know what? Um, that sounds wonderful, right? Uh, so that, I felt I felt there was some power to that. There was some excitement, and I've carried that love for writing ever since. You know, just what the power of fiction offers. Mm-hmm. With with uh, a hunting in Hialeah Gardens, it began when I was studying at the University of Nebraska. Um, I just moved there. I'm from Miami um, originally, so it was quite a shift. Center of the country, out in the Great Plains, and you know, adjusting to a life as a grad student, uh, small stipend. And kind of, I remember it was winter and I looked out my window and I was like, where am I? How, how did I get here? And feeling feeling debt, right? The pressure of student loan debt. I had uh, I had some exams that I needed to study for. And rather than doing that, I was like, I want to write about what I'm feeling right now. And that's kind of how Hugo was born. Uh, started there as a short story and then eventually over time, really kind of listening to not just Hugo, but pl- playing with these themes around debt saw that there was an opportunity to expand into a novel. Uh, so years later, I came back to it. That's fantastic. Um, first on your sort of your writerly origin story. I love <laughs> That's great. And um, I think, yeah, there is like a, a moment for people when they realize, I think, that they have the ability to make things up that entertain other people. That's really powerful for a lot of people. Um, and I love the role that libraries play too, you know, like as I think I've thought about for a long time about how libraries help to make readers, but it's only recently, I think, that I've thought about how they also help to make writers too. So that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad that you mentioned Hugo and the the role that debt plays in this novel, because I also, um, 
I am laboring under a whole bunch of student loan debt. And the the descriptions of just how it kind of like lives with you all the time and is always sort of like taking up a little bit of your like active uh, thinking space felt so realistic. And so could you talk a little bit about Hugo and his situation and maybe how that like guides his choices at the beginning of the novel? Oh, sure. Yeah, the um, that uh, what what I'm fascinated by is is like you said, right? It's uh, it plays such a large part in our lives, and we think about that uh, in very particular ways right now. I think you know, student loan debt, medical bills, and and it's this invisible pressure uh, that we often feel, but seldom in my own uh, circles do we sit around and talk about it. <laughs> and so, in the novel, I wanted. Uh, the debt to be abrasively visible, you know, in Hugo's face, literally cuddling up with him in bed uh, in the opening paragraph. Um, because I wanted to make visible uh, what's often just kind of in the background um, in a way. And for Hugo, his experience with that is very negative. Uh, you know, he, um, it's, it's um, you know, he owes uh, money to various creditors and, there, and then there's a collection firm in particular um, that is garnishing his wages. And uh, and he comes to understand uh, what it means to owe somebody something, uh, what it means to owe a community uh, something, these these sorts of questions. He comes to understand it in a very transactional way where he's kind of always under the heel to some, to some degree. Mm-hmm. So part of uh, what the novel is exploring is... Um, is is there is there a way to absolutely acknowledge the negative debt uh, in that negative category? But is there also a way to acknowledge the ways in which there uh, that it can be uh, beautiful on very fundamental terms to owe something to somebody? Mm. Uh, and I, I joke to some degree with uh, uh, my daughter is ten years old, and if I were keeping a tally on everything she owes me, right, she'd be in debt for life. <laughs> right? And the beauty there is that, of course, none of this is meant to be uh what is it reconciled or captured on a on a you know on a receipt or any of that right it's simply um you know um built into the the love and nature of our relationships the fact that we we do owe each other things wow and i was playing with those ideas a little uh and i see hugo is kind of caught in the middle of that in a kind of bleak situation Yeah. Wow. That is so interesting. You know, and I really, I don't think I was thinking of like debt as a sort of like in and of itself, like a neutral thing, you know, that can be (laughs) a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the context. And that is really lovely. Um, And it makes me think too, about the ways that like the bad kinds of debt, like the medical debt, the money he owes to various creditors um, can often like impede us from being able to focus on or really commit to like the debt that we have to our family members, our loved ones and stuff like that. Like it really can get in the way of our human relations too. Could you talk a little bit about, um, yeah, how this like maybe shapes his worldview and his relationship with uh, who I guess I would term like is Alexi the antagonist? I'm not sure, but his, <laughs> his antagonist, right? In this situation for sure. So yeah, could you talk a little bit about what's going on there? Absolutely. For Hugo, his, uh, you know, Miami, right, such a vibrant city, uh, really this rising global city, uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful location uh, for commerce, for migration, you name it, right? Uh, you've got people who go for Art Basel, uh, right, to, to go to Wynwood and see, you know, amazing art. And uh, and more recently with soccer, right, with Messi and all the excitement there. 
Um, for Hugo, what, what's what's interesting, I think, with Hugo is that although he lives in Miami, right, his his world is kind of shrunk, almost claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. You know, he his debts have made him uh, vulnerable to the degree that he he almost doesn't want to be in a situation where he needs to initiate a transaction. Right, uh, which leaves him in this tiny little efficiency most of the time, or you know, going to work, and um, as opposed to uh, Alexi, right, who's having a very different experience. Uh, Alexi is the one who is largely seen as uh, the the debt collector, the the creditor, and we might say, uh, you know, his his living quarters are are large, right, spacious. Um, so right right there, there's a striking. Uh, difference just in the way that they they experience uh, life in Miami you know and part of the journey in this novel is uh, seeing if there's a way to broaden uh, Hugo's life to affirm uh, his experiences in Miami beyond his regular go-to so there are little moments in the novel where maybe he goes to a restaurant unexpectedly right or maybe he's in traffic (laughs) you know stuck in traffic but uh in in the ugliness of that of of moments of road rage, right? He affirms his life in certain ways. Um, you know, uh, to to and I guess what I'm getting at is there are ways in which the these systems of debt have captured Hugo and have occupied every space of his life. And I think he's he's squeezed to the point where he's just trying to find space to live and 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 be himself, you know. Uh, and in a weird turn of events, it's, it's his interactions between Alexei that allows some of this to begin to come up, even if they're at each other's throats, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting dynamic, you know, um, and I love sort of the way that Hugo uh, leverages his his job, you know, <laughs> and how he performs it with Alexei. Because I think I for, have failed to mention that so far, that Hugo works at a botanica and oh. is... Um, you know, is is employed by Alexi to sort of like clear the, the haunting and that he's experiencing out of his house. And so can you talk a little bit about that role? Because there's so many things going on, like when Hugo comes in and does his like spiritual work in a space because he's like doing the work of a spiritualist, but also kind of like of a therapist sometimes a little bit. And like there's a little bit of con artistry to it, too. So could you talk a little bit about that aspect as well? Yeah, absolutely. Growing up in Miami, uh, it was a uh... Uh, it was part of my uh, daily life uh, to see evidence, let's say, of uh, what, what uh, I guess my parents would describe as santeria or, or you know, uh, these kind of uh, uh, rituals, right, that are uh, steeped in um, Yoruba traditions, uh, where you might see evidence of it uh, on a walk to school or if you go to a friend's house um, uh, who uh, is Catholic and has saints, uh you know, there by the doorway, uh, uh, things like that. And um, so for Hugo, um, you know, as somebody who's employed uh, at a botanica, um, and and it's this strange relationship, right? Because the botanica at once is supposed to be this site of magic, right? Of of the site of uh, the sacred and and holy. Um, But the transactional nature of a botanica undermines that. You know, like when you when you pay for a candle uh, that's supposed to give you good fortune, right? Does the transaction allow that magic to occur, right? Or is it somehow already captured in the system? So what I immediately in the novel, I try to differentiate between what Hugo does and what Ludus does, who's his boss and the owner of the Botanica. 
where uh, Luda seems to have Hugo there uh, so that he could handle the dirty side of the business, collect the money. You know, she doesn't really touch it. <laughs> Ludus is more concerned, right, with the integrity of, of the Botanica itself. Um, um, so from, from the very start, uh, Hugo seems a, feels a bit detached uh, from that spiritually uh, and, uh, and sees it, uh, has lost uh, his ability to see um the magic in the world right um everything is just very logical you know there is no ghost there is no spirit um so and part of the fun there was uh was you know as a writer especially telling hugo eh, you know it's the, your worldview is not that simple right uh it's actually a lot more expensive and you're about to find out yeah like while you were talking i was really thinking that the novel depicts like Miami is sort of like a several cities kind of layered over each other because there's like poor Miami and there's rich Miami. There is like sacred Miami and there's like everyday sort of banal Miami under it. And they all <laughs> exist in like really interesting ways. Um, I would love if you could talk a little bit about the aspect of um, of Hugo's past and how sort of like the, um, let's say like the trauma of colonialism uh sort of affects his past in his home country, but also how like the legacy plays out like in Miami and the various places that he's been in America. So yeah, could you talk about that aspect of the book a little bit? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, the Hugo, uh, it's funny because, you know, his past once once he begins to delve into it or once the novel begins to delve into it, it's expensive, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there's a whole life there, right? A whole world. And um and to some degrees, right, um, a city, a city like Miami, of course, also has a really complicated past and history. Uh, and if you're just kind of visiting Miami, maybe as a tourist or, or uh, even just kind of going through the motions of life, getting a little coffee or, or something, right? Sometimes uh, we're not, I guess we're not always excavating that past uh, or seeing how that past, um, you know, is informing where we're at at the moment. So with, with Going into this novel, um, I actually, in in drafting it, uh, began with Hugo's story, uh, and in particular, uh, what what drove me there was uh, this idea, um, the um, the silver mines, um, the the I guess I I drew an association between um, debt collection practices, uh, which somebody might describe as. Uh, you know, mining, mining debt, right? Or uh, mountains of debt, you know, uh, collect. And I drew an, an association between contemporary practices and then these kind of colonial uh, violent acts, right? And in particular in, in Bolivia or in Potosi, um, where the entire mountain uh, was mined under really terrible conditions that, and the, the kind of ecological and environmental damage persists today. Uh, and political, social, uh, you name it, there's still children working those mines, right? Uh, while, and then it was interesting to me that, um, you know, um, essentially the Industrial Revolution was funded largely by silver from those mines, right? And the uh, there's still kind of this gaping wound in, li literally in the land itself. So that, that this kind of, a glimmer of an image uh, between this this mountain that had just kind of been exhausted, uh, and then like this thriving Miami uh, came into view. So I, I that's what drove me uh, to uh, to Hugo in particular. Um, 
And then I guess um, part of the story is uh, how important it is to excavate uh, our histories, our pasts, and to understand where we're at uh, in the context of, of where we've been. Um, which I, I would say in a, a city like Miami, sometimes it's a fast moving city, right? Um, you know, and, um, and, and sometimes that, that doesn't always happen. Um, so I felt important, particularly important as a project. I'm so glad you used that word excavate because I feel like it's sort of uh, what Higo is doing throughout the novel in so many different ways. Yeah, because there's the literal, <laughs> literal excavation, but also like he is constantly um, like revisiting the relationships in his life, like past and present and sort of reevaluating them and and thinking of them in new ways. Um, one of the most moving, I think, parts of the novel is sort of the um, the way he revisits his marriage. Uh, and how I don't want to say his view of the relationship and of his of his wife change over time, but it becomes more nuanced, I think, and sort of like you can see him processing like loss and like a relationship dynamic in real time. And you see that happening too with his sort of um uh relationship with the the man who uh helped him uh cross into the country and who sort of like looked over him in his childhood. He is reevaluating all these different things. And yeah, I'm like wondering like if the ways in which like his like his inner turmoil is so like richly expressed in sort of like the the supernatural things, you know, without spoiling too many of them. Like <laughs> thinking about that sort of like the, the inner turmoil and how that like gets expressed in the sort of outer things happening. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The um yeah, you know, wanna uh just to go on a really brief tangent, um a novel that I that I love, even though it's super long <laughs> and kind of, you know, people make fun of it because uh, it's Victor Hugo's Les Mis, right? M make fun of it because it goes into the details about the Parisian sewers and, you know, all of that. But one of my favorite scenes in that novel, I'll never forget, it's the moment that uh, Jean Valjean uh, leaves the bishop's house and he's supposed to become a better man because uh, the bishop forgave him uh, for stealing, right? And I said, oh, you know, the things you stole, they're actually yours. So he's supposed to become this better man. And in the musical and the films, he becomes a better man. <laughs> of course, in the novel, he doesn't. <laughs> in, the, in the novel, he he leaves the bishop's house and he comes across a young boy uh, out in the countryside in which there's no city in view. And the young boy is flipping a coin and he catches the coin. Uh, and, and the young boy is like, hey, give me my coin back. And he says, what coin? Right. And he, he steals this coin from this boy. And the boy runs away crying. And it's only afterward that he feels really guilty about what he's done. But what I'm getting at is there's this moment where um, Jean Valjean looks out and tries to think, where is the boy? How can I redeem myself? And there's no city in sight. you know. And he spends pages going from one city to another looking for him. And the possibility of redemption or forgiveness or you name it becomes completely impossible. right? It kind of gets absorbed into the landscape. And with with Hugo, um, particularly with with some of what's happening uh, with Melly, uh, with his wife, uh, I was exploring something similar. Right? It would be so easy for Hugo to be able to to maybe kind of consolidate his feelings into one particular event or transaction or exchange between them. Um, but um, the novel really denies that. Um, you know, um, and I think that uh, maybe contributes a little bit to the psychological horror there. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, because I'm thinking too about how sort of um I'm wondering like if what's going on with like the relationship and with the debt and all that is like how we are forced to like compartmentalize these things in order to keep living our daily life. And so what we're actually seeing is, is him like kind of reintegrating <laughs> all these things that he's been trying to keep shut out. Um, yeah, I really appreciated Hugo's characterization and that like he is he doesn't do the right thing all the time you know he's <laughs> shaped <laughs> by his past trauma and sort of by this like um like a lot of armor you know emotional and protective armor you know that he's built up a lot around himself and I think that it's like it makes the novel so much more resonant that like he he is like you know Jean Valjean in, in a few ways is that like it, it does, it takes a little bit of time for, for this <laughs> to happen, you know, and that felt really, really, really real and really moving. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. Um, yeah, I was, um, I had one more question um, that's sort of about writing and, and craft and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, Cause you do have a, um, a volume of short stories that preceded this in the world of ultraviolet light. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to move from writing short stories to writing um, a full length novel. Does one come easier to you than the other? Or was, was this a particular challenge or a, or an exciting new opportunity or like, how was that transition? That's, that's a great question. Um, it's a, uh, it's funny. My, my writing process, um, you know, it begins with finding time to write. <laughs> and um, um what is it and competing interests right sometimes especially before these books came out I'd be writing and uh and my wife would be in the other room you know taking care of our daughter and I'd be like oh, I feel so guilty <laughs> you know I should go help and and she's so supportive uh I be I began I mentioned that because in in particularly um when I was doing my uh, PhD I was more drawn to short stories um, because with a short story uh, and it's not true for every writer, but I could get in on, in a day and draft an entire short story, right? And I could walk away from it and be like, that was hard, but I arrived at the end and now I can return to this and revise it. And, you know, I feel accomplished, you know, mm -hmm. and, but with a novel, uh, it would be so painful, right? <laughs> to just, I'm going to sit down one day and just do the whole thing. I know folks have done it, um, but it's so painful. It's so expansive, Um you know, and you kind of, you can get lost in them, right? Um, earlier novels that I've written um, that, you know, haven't seen the light of day. Um, I did get lost in them uh, for years, right? I just kind of trying to find my way through. I think uh, what I appreciate about the short story is, um, you know, you could kind of see it, uh, right? You can, you can play with uh, structure and plot in ways that are, um, you know that you can visualize and, and and appreciate and and that helped i think with with writing uh hunting and hylia gardens a bit um but i guess the the long and short of it is um like i kind of move in between them sometimes i'll be working on a story and i'll finish it and i'll be like this is great as a story and then uh i'll think maybe i should return to this and expand it right into a novella or something like that mm -hmm. um the Hunting in Hylia Gardens began as a short story. Mm. Um, and uh, it felt so rushed that I was like, I really need to draw this out and give it the time it needs. Mm. You know, so they they move between each other um, a bit. And I think of the novel as um, an opportunity to really uh, delve much deeper into the, the larger undercurrents themes um, in ways that maybe a short story will offer a glimmer of, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, I've always thought like short stories must be so hard because you have to be so ruthlessly, uh, you know, economical. <laughs> and you really have to be very sparse with your storytelling. And I'm very interested in how those things, even how things move from short stories to novels, like that's very, very cool to me. Um, what is next for you? Do you have more short stories or another novel on the horizon or what's going on right now? I, I am I, I am working on something. It's uh, I, I don't have a title yet. <clears throat> I'm looking at, uh, you know, I, I write a lot about Miami. And uh, and a lot of my research is in that area too. And Miami, of course, you know, major tourist site. Even uh, if we look back to its early history, right? You've got Henry Flagler, who's convinced to come down because uh, even though North Florida is is freezing, Miami's still warm. <laughs> right? And uh, you've always got this idea of like come down to South Florida, right, uh, where you could be on the beach and forget you have a job. <laughs> you know those kinds of things, right? So I'm I'm imagining. Um, you know, uh, kind of dystopic. Uh, I think it's in the air. A lot of people are trying to imagine what's Miami going to look like a hundred years from now. Mm-hmm. So I'm playing with that idea, uh, and in particular, um, a kind of Chernobyl-like uh, nuclear meltdown uh, that occurs in proximity to Miami. Uh, and uh, the novel opens with uh, an expedition. Uh, um, there's a vessel that that's going to a largely uninhabited Miami. Uh, that's being funded by tourism. Uh, And it's a a scientist uh, and a documentary maker who are trying to make sense of what happened 100 years prior. And uh, the scientist is going to collect mosquito samples. The documentary documentary writer is looking for evidence. And it's really about their competing ways of uh, thinking uh, and their different epistemologies, the way they conflict. uh, I think in conversation with kind of our post-truth moment, and also in conversation with novels like Frankenstein and uh, Annihilation, right? Um, the idea being that, you know, even when Miami no longer exists, right, what would it take for it to uh, rise up again, right, in the imaginary or to take a new form? Uh, something like that. You know, it's kind of kind of rough early stages, but messing around getting in there. Oh. That sounds fantastic. I'm very excited <clears throat> to see where that goes. And, you know, even though it's early days, like you are welcome back to the show to come talk about that book when it's out because it sounds fantastic. So thank hey, you for thank talking you. us and for this book. This has been wonderful. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. All right, listeners, please pick up A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens. By the time that you hear this, it will be available. So head over to your favorite independent bookstore or library, wherever you like to go get your books. Thank you so much. It is time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.